0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Uh, wait, you're listening Okay. <laughs> all right. Okay. okay.
3: All right. You're listening, listening. to Radio Lab.
2: Radio Lab. From (laughs) WNYC.
0: Hey, it's Latif. This is Radio Lab. Um, I'm just going to kick it over to Jad. This is a rerun from several years ago, but it's a weird one. It's not a typical Radio Lab episode. uh, And yet, like every great Radio Lab episode, it feels like it's about now somehow more than... Things that are being made now that are about now. Um, I don't know. Whatever you listen to it, and yeah,
4: enjoy. Hey, this is Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab, the podcast. Robert is out of town today, so it's just me. I thought in this podcast uh, I'd wander a little bit. <laughs> Generally,
2: and that should be in front of your mouth. So I'm going to start with a
4: conversation that uh, Brooke Gladstone and I, this is Brooke from On The Media, that she and I had with my brother-in-law, Eugene.
0: I'm Eugene Thacker. I'm an author and professor at the New School in New York City.
4: We talked about this very weird thing that happened to Eugene, uh, and I asked Brooke to join me because just felt like her kind of story.
2: I've been wearing black since I was 13. Uh, <laughs> I just want to
4: point out that the two of you are head to toe in black right now. <laughs> in any case, to set it up. Eugene is a hardcore scholar of philosophy, and he writes these books that um, sometimes can be a little dense. I mean, he'll use words like exegesis and ratiocination, And so the family joke is that he writes books for no one.
0: I think the the joke started out, I write books that nobody reads. <laughs> and then... After a slow, long period of acceptance, I started to think, well, maybe I should write books um, for no one to read and just sort of embrace that.
4: Meaning at a certain point, if you do this kind of work, you kind of have to ask yourself.
0: If you knew that this would not be published, would you still write it? How committed are you? And
4: he decided he was committed. He would write it no matter what. So the story begins a couple years ago. In um,
2: 2011.
4: Eugene writes this book. Called In the Dust of This
2: Planet. In the Dust of This
4: Planet. Mm Mm-hmm. It's kind of a hard book to describe, but if you had to sum it up in a sentence... It's uh, about the end of the world. But not in the Hollywood (laughs) sense. It's darker than that.
2: Your hypothesis is the greatest horror is that nothing exists and nothing matters. And the world that we live in, that we define in terms of humanity doesn't care about us.
0: Right. What in philosophy is often referred to as nihilism or pessimism. um, That there might not be a purpose to things or to your life or to our existence or to the cosmos. Uh, There might not be an order to things. We might not be here for a reason. This all might be purely arbitrary and an accident. That there's no inherent meaning to anything. That it just doesn't matter. This is what Nietzsche called... The most difficult thought.
4: And in the book, Eugene traces this idea through all of these different... Horror movies, from slasher films to sort of more supernatural uh, horror, and also music. I mean, at one point he goes into this deconstruction of how different types of black metal deal with this thought.
0: I don't know. It's it's something. It's a way of thinking I've always found really intriguing and, ironically, kind of inspiring.
2: Are you a pessimist? On my better days. <laughs> Are you a nihilist?
0: <laughs> Not as much as I should be. <laughs>
4: Okay, so Eugene writes this book in 2011. It is dark. It is dense. He writes it, as he says, for no one. And as expected, beyond a few philosophy types, no one really pays attention. So he keeps his head down, teaching, writing. But then, some things happen. 2014.
1: All no kinds of ghettos in the world. It's all one ghetto, man giant
4: gutter in outer space the show true detective comes along comes a big hit and at the center of the show is this character russ cole this louisiana detective who is one dark dude
1: i think human consciousness is a tragic misstep
4: in evolution he goes on these rants about how there's no order in the world how humans are just this accident we have to deal with that
1: look i'd consider myself a realist all right but in philosophical
4: terms i'm what's called a pessimist
3: And I just remember watching it and being like, wow.
4: That's Eugene's wife, Prema Murthy, my sister-in-law.
3: I was like, this replicates so many conversations that we've had in the car.
4: She's like, were they listening in on
3: us? Yeah, it was eerie.
4: So Prema goes online, clicks around.
3: And all of a sudden I see this article about um, the true detective director.
4: It was an article where uh, actually the writer of the show, Nick Pizzolato, was asked, how did you create that character of the nihilist police detective? And he lists a bunch of things he was reading at the time.
3: And included in that list was Eugene.
4: To which I was like, cool. At least one person is reading the book.
0: <laughs> but I, I really just try to tee my head to the ground and just keep writing, just doing what I'm doing. But then, things got weirder. Okay, so now
4: let's, can let's pull up the um, the Lucky Magazine. Let's see if we can find uh, yeah. it. A short time later, Prema is flipping through this fashion magazine. Yeah. Lucky, Lucky
0: Magazine, think, uh, and there was a spread with this actress. Lily Collins, 25-year-old actress. Who I'd never heard of. Pretty big right now. She's standing on a street corner. Dressed up in all of this sort of goth makeup and clothing. And in the photo, she is wearing Eugene's book on her chest. She had on, in one of the shots, a sweatshirt that had the cover of the book. In the dust of this planet, big letters right on her
4: chest.
3: And I was just like, no way. I mean,
0: it was definitely, uh, what the This f- is <laughs> crazy. Yeah.
3: Like, what? She's just casually wearing my husband's book cover. I don't know.
0: Again, I didn't react to, but it was just strange. Turns out a Norwegian artist had made a
4: painting of the book That image had gotten picked up by a fashion label and turned into some very expensive clothes.
0: You know, I write books for no one to read, so obviously I'm not pulling in a lot of royalties on these, but, you know...
4: Eugene says he's not gonna sue.
0: I'm not going to sue or take any legal action or or really do anything about it. Because he says that's not why he writes. Okay, so that happened.
4: But then it gets weirder still. So one day my wife, Carla Murthy, is online. This is the day that Jay-Z and Beyonce announced they're gonna do this big international tour. Carla's watching the video that they released to promote that tour, sort of a fake movie trailer. She
3: so says on the run, it's all flashy. Guns, fire, hookers.
4: Here's my guy. It, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I mean, it's some kind of Bonnie and Clyde thing, I think. I mean, they're running from someone, you're not quite sure who. Beyonce is in a wedding dress. She's
0: got a veil on.
4: But she's shooting semi automatic weapons in her wedding dress, cut to car chases, oh cut to God, money yeah. flying everywhere. But at exactly 37 seconds in. Of course. Oh, damn oh, it. Go, go back, go back, go back. It's like you're making me think too fast. You see Jay Z turn, stick a giant gun out to his right, and he is wearing Eugene's book. Right there on his back, in the dust of this planet. That's not you. Now, this is the point at which I was like, "Okay, what do we make of this? I mean, could it be that Eugene is no longer writing books for no one? That somehow he has become a conduit for this idea that we all, in that subterranean way that pop music operates, that we all are channeling right now?" That was my thought.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's um, that's the question is whether this is something particular to the moment we're living in. And Eugene, his knee-jerk reaction is... I think it could have been this cover or a million other covers.
4: No. This is just meaningless appropriation.
0: I don't think there's anything more than that to me. Then it's just it looks like a cool phrase to go on a t-shirt to put on a goth girl in some photo shoot.
2: And why is it cool?
0: Right.
4: Because my hunch is you might be right, but mm-hmm. you also might be wrong because of the answer that you're about to give to Brooke's question.
0: It's cool because some publicist... No, no,
4: no. no. This was sort of the conversation I wanted to have, and that's why I called Brooke. Like, what is behind all of this nihilistic entertainment that's everywhere? Now, Brooke, for her part, agreed that Eugene probably is tapping into something.
2: Yes, but is this unique to this moment? And to that, I would say no.
4: Really? You don't think this says anything about now?
2: I think there are cycles in which the sense of meaninglessness comes out in sharper relief than other times. Mm. But you can identify them over and over again.
5: Yeah. Nihilism goes all the way back. Brooke actually turned us on to this guy. Simon Critchley. I am the Hans Jonas professor at the New School for Social Research. Simon wrote an article that uh, basically made the argument that nihilism is the basic credo of cool. Because it's, it's sexy, it's interesting. And it's been that way forever. Oh, I've got, I've got, I've got the best thing for you. You'll love this. <clears throat> it's a Russian word, right? He
4: said the word really got its pop in 1862. This is 150 years ago. There's a novel by Turgenev called Fathers and Sons. And in the novel, the son, who's the nihilist, turns
5: to his conservative dad... And he says... We base our conduct on what we recognize as useful. In these days, the most useful thing we can do is to repudiate. And so we repudiate everything. The father says, everything? Everything. With indescribable composure. So that's the nihilist moment. Everything goes. And Simon says roughly from that point on, you
4: see uh, young people glom on to this idea again and again as a way to you know, say no to the older generation or to just what's happening in the world. For example, after World War I, you had tens of millions of people dead, this lost generation that was confused and disgusted at what had just happened. And out of that, says Brooke, you get Dada.
2: I want to pull up here on the computer the manifesto of Tristan Sara.
4: He was one of the founders of the Dada movement.
2: He says, Dada means nothing. Everything one looks at is false. Dada. Abolition of memory. Dada. Abolition of archaeology. Dada. Abolition of prophets. Dada. Abolition of the future.
4: And after World War II, she and Simon say you had similar movements in
5: the 70s and 80s with the threat of nuclear annihilation. You get punk rock. It just keeps going. Pop culture, at least since I was a kid, has always been deeply nihilistic, you know. All right, so it's nothing new. But... When I ran Simon
4: through the Eugene jacket situation, and then I asked him, like, is there something different about today's nihilism versus nihilisms of the past? Like, is there something more potent about it? Without hesitation, he said, "I say, I say yes." Hmm. Huh. Based uh, on what? That's producer Andy Mills, who was with me during the interview.
5: Well, you know, you can you can get.
4: Simon says it was more of a gut feeling uh, based on this class that he taught last year with Eugene, oddly enough. I didn't actually know that they knew each other, but they had taught this class
5: together. So the seminar that we did in the fall last year was one of those rare seminars. We're teaching mysticism. Nobody teaches mysticism. Really obscure stuff. We're doing desert fathers, medieval female mystics. This is early Christianity. Neither of us are religious.
4: He says they started the seminar, uh, not really expecting much, by talking about how
5: in the fourth century AD. There was a city, Alexandria. This is near Egypt. Right? Alexandria was a lot like Manhattan. It was an offshore island, it was a colony of a former power, Roman Empire. And it's the seat of all culture and all learning in the ancient world. At a certain point in the fourth century, people start to leave. They start to leave and go into the desert. People wander off. And they seem to want something else. The city doesn't just doesn't do it anymore. Why? It's corrupt. It's broken. It's, uh, it's sinful.
4: He said crime was rampant, pollution, and so people just started to wander off into the desert and live in these caves.
5: And uh, these intense forms of ascetic practice begin. Like you had these women. Who were not educated because women couldn't be educated. Who were so enraptured with Christ that they began hurting themselves throwing themselves into icy rivers jumping into ovens the body is something which is you're trying to strip away in order that you can free the capacity for for love like that's,
6: so a, that's a classic
0: mystic idea right the yeah. body is just getting in the way yeah. I want to go soul to soul exactly with God
5: exactly but the premise of that again is that the um the world is a kind of field of ruins but he says what really struck him is that as he was talking about all this, he would glance out at the students and he would notice this look in their eyes. I just felt that in the room there was this, this deep need was being fulfilled by these strange mystics. He said the students were just in it in a way that
4: almost never happens when you're teaching.
5: We weren't not saving souls, but it was, it was hitting something really, really deep. What exactly? I mean, do you think they were starting to form
4: the thought of... Wandering into the desert, so to speak?
5: Yeah, I think, I think there's a sense in which, you, you, you know, what do you do? Uh, succeed, walk away. You know, that's where a lot of people are at.
0: As
4: for what's behind it all, he says just turn on the news. A
5: video
0: showing the beheading of a second American journalist has now been verified.
3: Disease experts say this is turning into one of the longest, deadliest outbreaks ever. The girls were gang-raped and strangled.
2: Once again, it is mostly children we are seeing brought into this hospital...
5: I mean, the world I grew up in made sense. It was completely crazy, mutually assured destruction, but it made sense. And you could understand it in very simple terms. There was the United States, there was the Soviet Union. We were going to be eviscerated. That was clear. But, it, you know, you, you knew what the balance of power was.
4: You're, you're nostalgic for mutually assured destruction? Is that what's happening now?
5: It seems a much simpler world. Well,
4: you at least knew who to blame for it, right? Right. That's Andy again? I mean, like that's the thing. Like, you look at the Cold War... And you could see, like mm-hmm. specifically, like f- you Soviets, f- you Americans, yeah. f- the nukes. That's right, right? <laughs> That's right. And now,
6: yeah, who am I supposed to say f- you to? I'm saying f- you to everybody.
3: Carbon
4: emissions. Speaking of which, today the world's leading climate scientists warn it will get worse. No doubt, one of the reasons for the current gloom is that we are in the middle of an uncomfortable shift in how we talk about climate change. waves will be more frequent and last longer. This was made official when the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released a report where for the first time they stopped using the language of prevention and shifted to the language of adaptation. In other words, hundreds of scientists and policymakers, this is the world's top organization for assessing climate change, were now saying, we can't stop it. It's inevitable.
1: So now we need to talk about dealing with the mess that is now on our doorstep that's David Victor. Professor of International Relations at uh, University of California at San Diego. And he is one of the authors of the report. When the IPCC first began uh, back in the late 1980s, you could imagine that people would take the climate change problem seriously. They would start to control emissions, and then over a period of decades, climate would stop changing. And instead what's happened is people have talked a lot about climate change, but they haven't actually done much to control emissions.
4: And now he says we're all in this strange middle ground where we're trying to find the language to say why it's important to keep working at this while at the same time admitting some degree of failure. And that's the kind
1: of inevitability that I think you see in the new uh, the new reports. And, and the reports are bending over backwards to try and find ways to be optimistic. You know, the report says... If you put into place all these technologies and international agreements, we could we could still stop warming at two degrees. My own assessment is that the kinds of actions you'd need to do that are so heroic that we're not going to see them on this planet.
4: All of which reminded me of that true detective moment.
1: Look, I'd consider myself a realist, all right? but in philosophical terms, I'm what's called a pessimist. Um. Okay, what's that mean?
4: Well, uh, pessimists like nihilists agree there's no meaning. They're just uh, a little more mopey about it, less likely to do something. means I'm bad at parties. (laughs) I mean, is that where we're all headed? You know, in a recent Wall Street Journal poll, 76% of people 18 and over weren't confident that the future is going to be brighter than the past. Which brings me back to Brooke's question.
2: Why is it cool?
4: Call it nihilism, pessimism, whatever. Shouldn't it be depressing? Why would you want to put a phrase, like, in the dust of this planet? A phrase that deliberately negates the person wearing it. Why would you want to put it on your chest or on your back?
6: Yeah, yes, we do. That's fine. We, we encourage it.
4: good. And since it was Jay-Z's jacket, which was, in a way, the catalyst for this whole podcast, we decided to talk to him. Sort of. That's coming up.
3: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab.
0: Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking, a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more— people like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Good, this sounds great.
4: Hey, this is Jad's Radio Lab. So, uh, we ended up in the flow of things, you know, as we were trying to figure out, like, in the dust of this planet, why is that cool? Why is that just scary and depressing? We ended up. I'm like they want to talk to me? Why? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Talking to this lady, who it turns out was the person who made the decision to put it on Jay Z's back.
6: I should say my name, I guess. Uh, my name is June Ambrose. I've been a costume designer for 22 years, mm, 23 this year, and I've worked with everyone from. Luther Vandross to Puffy to Sean to Mariah Carey, Buster Rhymes, Mary Jablash to Alicia Keys, Dave Matthews' band, Backstreet Boys, Kelly Ripa, Kim Cattrall, Missy
2: Elliott.
4: Did you do the Missy with the balloon? Yeah. That was you? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. God. And of course, Jay Z and Beyonce. <laughs> That's like culture, basically. Yeah,
6: I was responsible for some of yeah. that, that Nazi stuff. <laughs>
4: it occurred to Andy and I during the interview that uh, June has probably influenced the fashion sense of a significant portion of the human beings on this planet. And she was very clear that a costume is more than just a costume.
6: It's like a conversation without words.
4: That really what she's doing when she styles someone is Whispering. To all the people that are going to watch the videos,
6: come in contact with the billboards, go to the concerts. I don't have to talk to you, but I can create this conversation with a pair of pants and how they fall and how they fit and the texture and the color and the feel.
4: She says with Jay-Z for that video, she knew she needed something epic. But like
6: effortless. I knew I wanted a biker jacket, because it was a motorcycle scene, but I knew that I just couldn't give him a black leather I needed to. I needed to say something, feel like something. So we were on a hunt.
4: Her and her assistant went to dozens of places.
6: tailors, studios, showrooms.
4: Looking at all these leather jackets.
6: It's like finding a needle in a haystack. Nothing was right. But then...
4: They saunter into this one place.
6: Um, black denim. This place
4: that does sort of high-end grunge. They're flipping through the racks when... She sees it. The jacket. Those words.
6: And that was it. I knew it. I said I need this is what I need. It just felt I mean, it was just perfect.
4: The question was why? At this point, I hadn't really told her the whole backstory. So I pulled out a screen capture from the video. This is one where you see Jay-Z sort of standing in the desert, shot from behind, in the dust of this planet on his back, and he's kind of pointing this really long, dirty hairy gun off to his right, sort of up. Like he's about to shoot the sun?
6: Yeah, you think he's about to shoot the sun.
4: I, I printed it out because it's just got this, like, billboard oh. quality to it, right? Yeah, I, uh, here it is.
6: I have a really cool one in my phone, too, that's never been Okay, before.
4: so let's just look at this for a second. Yeah. The sun, you. So, like, why did you choose that
6: jacket? Um, you know, it's something very menacing about it. It's almost like... the aftermath. That there was something going on that was periling. The end of an era, the beginning of something new.
4: She says in the back of her head she was thinking about how the music industry might be dying.
6: It's definitely in a place where it's like, what now? You can hear it in the music.
4: And, you know, if this is the biggest tour in history,
6: really, what now? You know, and these are the whispers that you hear.
4: But she says one of the loudest whispers was super simple. Just, here's a guy. Massive pop star. Like a sovereign. He's in the desert. It's
6: about to go down. The end of the world is literally on his back. But it was almost as if he didn't even know that was on his back. You know what I mean? It's like, that was the afterthought.
4: Like, oh yeah, the world's ending? Psst, I don't care. Going out and stuff. In other words? He wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid.
6: Wasn't afraid. You know what?
4: That's what, that's what this, we talk about whispers. That's what I get from it. Now that you said that. It's not so much I don't give a I'm not afraid. Yeah.
6: I mean, we all have to leave the planet. You know, everybody has their day. What you work on is not being afraid when you have to leave.
4: Yeah, we'll get it to you. Okay. That'd be
6: cool. Thank you. This is, um, this was actually refreshing. I actually...
4: Walking out of that interview. Thank you. And this was, by the way, after we had told her that the phrase on Jay Z's back was lifted from a book written by my brother in law, Eugene.
6: Oh, wow. Now I need to get the book and I need to get it to Jay.
4: Which she was very interested to know. Can we do that? Yeah, let's do that. And we did send him the book. Haven't heard back. Oh, my God. Anyhow, walking out of there, I kept thinking, is that what this is all about? That all this pop nihilism around us is not about tearing down power structures or embracing nothingness. It's just, look at me. Look how brave I am.
2: That I can wear it on a T-shirt. Yeah, I would
0: go with that. And this is why, as you pointed out, you know, from Dada to punk, this is a recurring motif of how how badass you are in facing mortality.
2: Bingo. Badass. That's what I was thinking.
0: I think that that is nothing more than a posture. I mean, it's all fine when you're 18 to wear that T-shirt, but when you're, like, in your 50s dealing with cancer, like, okay, you know, maybe maybe then is when you really have to confront those things. So I just, it's, a, it's simply a posture, and that's why it's in pop culture.
5: A quite cynical response would be to say, you know, why we love nihilism in pop culture is that it saves us having to be burdened with it. Simon Critchley again. It saves us from feeling it, right? We can, we can enjoy it in our rooms. We can get off on it, and then we let it go. And we go, we go back to work. But Simon says you don't have to be cynical
4: about this if you don't want to be. I mean, Nietzsche, Mr. Dark Pessimist himself, had this idea about nihilism that it was just the beginning. That if you really dealt with it, took it in, accelerated it to its logical end, you could get to the other side,
5: which he called... A revaluation of values some new way of thinking about who we are as moral creatures. And that's, that's kind of where I am. And love, love is that capacity which can sear through that. And that, he suspects, is why
4: his students were so interested in those mystics, because they had found a way
5: through. These people, these mystics, have got the uncompromising commitment to something like love. The fact
4: that they were ready to go all the way, to negate even their own bodies... For that
5: love. Right, so in a world where, um, where love has been reduced to Tinder exchanges, if that's the hell that you're living in as a 25-year-old, then, yeah, you're going to read these mystics and think, I want what she's having. You know, <laughs> I'll, take, I'll, take, I'll take what she's having. That burn seems, my flesh. That's right, burn my flesh. And you could argue,
4: I mean, why not, that Jay-Z and Beyonce, they've got a little bit of that going on. I mean, part of what's made this tour so big, biggest tour ever, actually, is that it's like this grand love story.
6: I'm with it's the love of my life. So it's, right. all, it's like it works. No, but you right? said, but I have a
4: fantasy. Good. I have a fantasy that Beyonce and Jay-Z will do this tour. And they will go off into the desert. <laughs> and they'll live in a little hut. Like this monastic existence. Together in love in a, oh, new, okay. a new sort of age of Aquarius will begin <laughs> starting with the two of them that's
6: beautiful the, the loudest mic drop uh,
4: any <laughs> chance of that?
6: oh you can really hear me slip, right, slip yeah, on yeah it's oh really that's a really nice funny. sound
4: <laughs> that was your answer
6: <laughs> <laughs> pina colada on the beach
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe a perfect response to Jade's question yeah
4: Special thanks to the Murphy tribe and to Zero Books and, of course, to Eugene Thacker, who, even though he harbors no redemptive fantasies about human beings whatsoever, is an awesome dude. This piece is an homage to him, one of the most committed writers I know. Also happens to be my brother-in-law. If you would like to read In the Dust of This Planet, and I actually do highly recommend it, it's super fascinating, go to our website, radiolab.org, and uh, we'll link you to it. I'm Jad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler.
3: Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co hosts. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, W. Harry Fortuna. David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyanasambindam, Matt Hilty, Annie McEwan, Alex Neeson, Sara Kari, Anna Rosquet paz Arianne Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Carolyn McCusker and Sarah Sonbach. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Adam Schibill. Hi.
1: This is Brian from Alameda, California. Leadership support for Radiolab science programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation Initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation.
6: Thanks, guys.